0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Okay, everyone, the coronation of the sun in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a really important psalm In the Book of Psalms, obviously, it's right at the beginning and, uh, in that sense, it introduces a number of the themes throughout uh, the entire Book of Psalms. And it's the perfect psalm for the Cross and Crown Church, Uh, the Coronation of God's Son. So, So what we have here is a psalm about human evil, what God's going to do about evil and how we should respond. I think our society has got an odd relationship with evil. Uh, On the one hand, everyone acknowledges the heinous nature of certain evil acts and is rightly appalled by them. Uh, Domestic violence, racism, genocide, murder, child abuse, all of those things rightly bring a response of horror out from everyone in society. But on the other hand, there's a certain attraction to evil, or at least a flippancy about evil. uh, on 101.9 The Fox, that's not my normal radio station, but I was listening the other day with my son in the car, and I recall hearing a listing of the seven deadly sins out of Christian tradition, and the, the uh, uh, people on the radio found it quaintly hilarious. They took pride in fessing up to many of the sins. And Basically, after the seven sins were given, they gave a number for the number of sins that they committed. And uh, one of my favorite ice creams is the Magnum. And uh, they put out a limited edition campaign of the Magnum, Magnum some years ago called, you guessed it, the Seven Deadly Sins. And the byline was, give in to them. I'll tell you briefly what they were. Gluttony was an intense chocolate ice cream, double whipped in classic and white chocolate. Lust was strawberry. I reckon they could have gone for a coffee flavour there. Uh, Roth was vanilla with fruits of the forest swirl. Maybe tea would have been a better flavour. Envy was pistachio. Pride was creamy vanilla ice cream laced with champagne, believe it or not. Sloth was caramel. I digress. Uh, In Australian culture, of course, we celebrate some figures who have been, by all standards, rebels. Uh, the, uh, the great Ned Kelly being the obvious one and more generally we admire the larrikin spirit, we describe someone as a lad and the fact that all of these examples are male is probably no accident. And I think two of much popular English uh, Billie Eilish, again something I've had the misfortune to listen to on the radio, uh, she has that uh, song where she's has the line, I'm the bad guy, blah. and uh, again It's not a bad thing to be the bad guy. But is evil really just a trifling thing? And is it to be equated with a bit of fun and harmless indulgence? So what does Psalm 2 say about evil? Now, it's not the whole story about evil. The doctrine of sin or evil or rebellion against God in the Bible is obviously a very big one. But it does, as I said earlier, answer three big questions. One, what's wrong with evil? Two, what's God doing about evil? And three, what should we do as a response? And those three questions correspond to the three parts of the psalm, one to four, five to nine, and ten to twelve. So let's start with one to four. What's wrong with evil behaviour? Sin is many things. In biblical terms, sin is rebellion against God. It's a form of self-harm, if you like. It hurts others. It's, It's madness. It invites God's judgment. It pollutes, defiles, makes one guilty. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear that sin is missing the mark. That's actually a a word study fallacy. If you hear someone say that, you can send them to Ridley College to sort them out. Here in Psalm 2, we find another point. In verses 1 to 4, we learn that rebelling against God, sin, is futile. Verse 1 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Uh, The scene is something like uh, something that would happen quite commonly in the ancient world where a king would die, and then the other potential kings and nations around that kingdom would think about the possibility of taking over. Uh, It was fairly common to have rebellion ensuing uh, in a power struggle. For example, Luke 19, verse 27, one of the parables of Jesus uh, there's a spot where it says um, these my enemies who did not want me to be their king bring them here and kill them right here in front of me so Jesus knew very well the first century and he's listened to it too, of this kind of power struggle here we've got cosmic treason against God himself so they're plotting and they're raging and uh, conspiring if you like Uh, It involves nations and peoples, probably the enemies of the nation, Israel, are in view. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Uh, When I was a a younger man, I went on youth group camps or house parties. We used to stay up late at night and play a game called Risk. I don't know if you know the board game Risk. It's basically a, a world domination game. You start out with a certain number of countries and armies and basically try and take over the rest of the world. So you would, naturally enough, make treaties with uh, friends in the game, and naturally enough, you'd conspire and against them and end up betraying them. It's funny though, isn't it? The the game didn't usually end well on those friendship notes, uh, but that's uh, that's just the way it went. Uh, We we renamed the game World Evangelization in an attempt to uh, try and take the sting out of it. It didn't seem to work. But here we have exactly that. The kings of the earth are taking their stand, they're conspiring together against the Lord and his anointed one, his chosen one. We'll come back to that language. So the kings of the earth take a stand, and it sounds very ominous, doesn't it? The kings of the earth, the whole earth, is is the notion, I guess, and uh, these are coming against, in unison, God's king, his Messiah, is anointed one. They're seeking to overthrow God's Messiah and God's plans for the world. And the book of Acts, in chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, quotes these verses in connection what happened with what happened to the Lord Jesus at his crucifixion. Then in verses 3 and 4, we read what they say. So in verses 1 and 2, we have their actions. Verse 3, we get their words. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. And then in verse 4 the Lord responds. Let's see what he says. The one enthroned in heaven, I think very uh, important to note how he's described, laughs. The Lord ridicules them. In God's eyes their actions, their plans, their words are ridiculous. Here we learn friends that rebelling against God is doomed to fail. It doesn't work. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. It's pointless. So the mood here of God in response is one of amazement, eventually indignation, but initially he shows no concern whatsoever. He just laughs. The description of God as the one who sits enthroned in, in heaven says, that, oh, all doesn't bother to get up. He just sits there. And uh, interestingly, the word Lord here, if you look in your Bibles, in verse 4 is in lower case, whereas in other parts of the psalm, for example, in the end of verse 2, it's in all capitals. What's happening there. there? Well, just a bit of background. When you read in the Old Testament, in most English versions, the Lord, that word in capitals, it's a reference to the personal name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, sometimes called the Tetragrammaton, sometimes pronounced as Yahweh. Lord's a fine translation. But there is another word in Hebrew, L-O-R-D, which we have here, which is closer to our word, master, I think it'd be fair to say. So what we have here is God as the sovereign master of the earth and everyone else as his servants. That's what the name really conjures up, that image. God laughs and mocks this thought that their rebellion might in any way stand against him. And the point is that rebelling against God is a joke you might say, it's pointless and futile. The one enthroned in heaven stays seated, doesn't even bother to get up. So, friends, next time you or I attempted to be taken in, say, by prideful thoughts or to act out of pure self-interest, to respond with malice towards someone who's wronged us, to hold a grudge, to be greedy, to take control of our own lives, to live purely for ourselves, to stop walking in the light, humbly and openly before God. It's worth remembering that all such rebellion is doomed to failure. The one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. Now this brings up a subject that's not that popular in our day, even in Christian circles. It's the notion of the fear of God. Um, Most of us like to talk about loving God. He's our father, just as a child love their parents, we love God, and that's right throughout the Bible, and it uh, comes to uh, be the main emphasis, you might say, in the New Testament. But the fear of God is still a legitimate thing for Christians, and uh, it, it, it plays a very important function in our lives. Uh, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that the love of Christ or the love of God constrains me. So my love for Christ moves me on, we hope, to do things that are uh, generous and kind and costly, whereas the fear of God restrains me. At the end of a terrible list of sins in Romans 3, it says that there was no fear of God before their honours. So the question for us is, do you and I have this fear of God, respecting him as a servant respects their master, holding him in awe, as, it, as we'll see in verse 11? In a few months. So in verses 1 to 4, what does God make of human rebellion? He scoffs. What does he do about human rebellion? Verses 5 to 9 tells us, uh, first of all, verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Then we hear a quote of what the Lord says. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So make my mistake. God will end their rebellion by installing their king. God will end all rebellion by crowning his chosen king. This is a terrifying thing for the rebels. He's full of wrath and angry condemnation. God says, my king will prevail, and he will rule from Zion. Zion is the place set apart for the worship and service of God in the Old Testament. God is behind, fully behind. The Israelite king in its initial context and God is obviously behind the Lord Jesus as the king of the earth. How certain is the rule of God's king? Verse 7 tells us, the Lord says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So we get a big theme of biblical theology here. Uh, The notion of uh, the Messiah being the Son of God. The Bible, after all, is, is kind of like a good movie. Uh, whenever you tune in at any point during the movie, you really need the backstory to know what's going on. In most good movies, you'll read something, or you'll watch a scene, you not read it, you'll watch a scene early on, something will happen, or something is said, and it's full significance. It doesn't come into focus until later in the movie, This is what we've got here. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised to uh, David a covenant, that in that covenant a son of David would rule on David's throne forever and God would treat that king as his son. So we get uh, the two ideas there of kingship and sonship put together. And then the other idea we have back in verse 2 in our psalm, God's anointed one. Anointed one is a similar word to Messiah, the one who is the Messiah. So all three streams come together in this psalm so that it's quite legitimate for us to read this as ultimately referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God's anointed, His Messiah, he's God's king, verse 6, and he's God's son, verse 7. The king in Old Testament thinking is the vice-regent. God is actually the king, and uh, the uh, king David and his line under him were, in a sense, representing him. So we have here the comparison of the coronation of the king to God getting a son. And indeed, in Hebrews 1 verse 5, the psalm, our psalm, refers to the exaltation and coronation of King Jesus. I think it's very significant, isn't it? That at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, God says to him, you are my son, uh, my well-pleasing and beloved son. So, God will end all rebellion by crowning his chosen king, the Messiah, his son. How universal will his reign be? How far will it extend? Or verses 8 and 9 tell us. Uh, this is uh, God speaking to his Messiah, his son, the king. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Here we have a big big theme from the Bible introduced, namely a theme which is the focus of Jesus' own teaching, uh, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, interestingly, isn't a phrase in the Old Testament. It's what Jesus came proclaiming, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but, but it's the same concept or idea here. And certainly one significance of God's son's kingship is inheritance and the inheritance we read about in verse 8 is to have sovereignty over the rebels and note the certainty ask of me and i will it's just immediate isn't it nothing could be more sure and it's described as the lord's decree so what should the kings do with this decree in verses 1-4 to we certainly saw this idea that uh, rebelling against god is futile in verses five to nine, that God will end all rebellion by crowning His chosen King. And just as an aside, Revelation 19:15 quotes our Psalm in describing the end-time picture of the return of Christ. It says, "Out of His mouth is a sharp sword to strike down the nations." Then it quotes Psalm 2: He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury. Of the wrath of god very sobering notion the thought of the lord jesus returning to bring judgment upon the earth so what then should we do what should the kings do what's the application of this psalm well this is 10 to 12 tell us we should smarten up and submit to god's chosen king urgently And there's a number of imperative mood verbs or commands here in these last three verses. Verses uh, 10 to 12, the kings are told to be wise, to receive instruction, to serve the Lord, to rejoice with trembling, to pay homage and to take refuge. Verse 10, so now kings be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. And this is even the language he puts uh, the kings in their place because the language of receiving instruction is what a father would give to his child. The child is to listen to the instruction of his parents. And there's great irony here, isn't there, that uh, uh, the Lord addresses the rulers of the earth as they're described as mere children. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Our psalm tells us that to be wise, one should become a worshipper of the Lord, the God of Israel, and that fearing God will lead to obedience and service. Reverential law could be translated fear, serve the Lord with fear. And uh, uh, the next verse tells us in verse 12 that uh, the kings uh, and we too should pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. Some translations take a more literal approach here and say, kiss the sun. Now, obviously, in our context, kissing the sun sounds very odd, but uh, kissing, uh, you'll know from some cultures, is a way of paying homage. It's a way of expressing submission, and that's what we're asked to do in this psalm. And we should do this urgently, lest... Patience, and we perish in our rebellion. Uh, Sometimes evil takes our breath away, doesn't it, when you watch something on the news or you hear of something even as close as your neighbourhood, and it's quite natural to ask ourselves, well, what is God doing when this terrible evil is taking place on the earth? And the answer is, he's being patient that more might come to repentance. But he is resolutely determined to put an end to all rebellious evil. And it's a huge mistake, friends, to mistake God's patience for his indifference. God is appalled by the evil that happens on earth, and he's determined to bring justice to the whole world, including every nation. Now, sometimes it's translated that uh, you will perish in the way. Way then reminds us that uh, rebelling against God is very often not a momentary decision. It leads us down a path. And in this case, the choice is clear. It's a path of destruction or blessing. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount painted the same picture when he said there are two ways. So rebellion against God and his king is a bad idea and obedience Is a good idea because as it says at the end of our psalm it leads to blessing his anger may ignite at any moment all who take refuge in him are happy so we return to the notion of blessedness which is introduced if you want to take a look at some point in psalm one where uh, um, the happy or blessed is the person who uh, who who, uh, resists evil and uh, puts themselves obedience to God's word. The wise thing to do is to smarten up and submit to God's chosen king urgently. So now, friends at Cross and Crown, be wise. Receive instruction. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. That's the warning. But then there's great comfort in the last line. All who take refuge in him are happy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are determined to put down all rebellion on the earth and to deal with the terrible evil that is such a blight on humanity.
1: We own up to our own part in
0: rebellion, and we ask you to forgive us. Thank you that forgiveness is available through the death of your son in our place. We look forward, Lord, to the day in the future when the Lord Jesus will receive the honour and obedience when every knee shall bow across the earth, and that, uh, that honour and obedience that is his due will be given to him. Help us to pay homage to him in the meantime, to serve him with gladness and to be happy as we take refuge in him. Help us especially, Lord, in these troubling and unsettling times to find our confidence in the fact that you have a plan for our world and for each one of us to put the world to right. Please help us to fall into line with your plan and submit to your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.